well may we say God save the Queen, because nothing will save the conspiracy theories of the boomer generation about the dismissal. Welcome back to the IPA's Looking Forward, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. Today we're looking at the so-called Palace Papers, the correspondence between the then Governor-General and Buckingham Palace regarding the dismissal of Gough Whitlam in 1975. And gosh, it seems like it was only yesterday. We'll also be crossing to America, where we'll be looking at the US and particularly on the right, where the prospect that Trump might actually lose is opening up some fissures in the Republican Party as they position themselves for what they want to happen, but what might happen afterwards if he does indeed lose. And finally, we'll be looking at the latest ructions at the New York Times as they jettison yet another non-woke journalist. Uh, is this really about wokeness or is it also the collapse and birth of a new media model? We'll be looking at that. As always, we'll have a books and culture segment uh, this week. Uh, we have a new Amazon Prime, Prime series called Upload about a guy who dies and that's only the start of his troubles. Uh, I'll be reviewing Modern Love, The Lives of John and Sunday Reed of Heidi Museum of Modern Australian Art fame, uh, which covers the bohemian birth of modernist art in Australia. And uh, Andrew Bushnell will provide his usual report from lockdown about what he's unearthed on Netflix, this time uh, the movie First Man uh, about Neil Armstrong, uh, starring Ryan Gosling. So we're looking forward to that. Uh, as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Dr Chris Berg, from the bunker. Thank you, Scott. Good day. Great to have you back on the show, as always, and uh, welcome back to the uh, Bailey Meyer studio for the first time in a while, research fellow at the IPA, Andrew Bushnell. Cheers, Scott. It's good to be back in the studio. Man, it's good to see you. It's been a while. <laughs> yeah. A couple uh, of months. It's, it's, it's good to do this in the studio rather than in the uh, or over the internet. Yes, yes. Some shocking memories of virtual... Um, <laughs> virtual looking forward technology, although the result for the viewers, I hope, was always um, was w always worthwhile. Um, yes, Chris, as I mentioned at the top of the show, palace papers are dominating the news cycle today. That's right. So the National Archives of Australia has released 211 letters between Sir John Kerr and Buckingham Palace around the time of the dismissal. This is the almost single-handedly, almost single-handed result of a historian named Jenny Hawkins. She's written a number of books on Gough Whitlam and some other Labor figures. She took the archives, the National Archives, to federal court in 2016 to have them released. The archives fought and fought and fought and eventually lost, and they were finally released on Tuesday to much hullabaloo. Andrew what do you think of this? And do you think, let, let's start with the letters themselves. What do you think we've learned, if anything, from them? Well, my impression was, and correct me if I'm wrong, everyone, but uh, my impression was it was a little bit of a damp squib, right? That there were these hopes that, in some sense, like, you know, Kerr would have written to the Queen to say, as our CIA masters suggested, <laughs> I have, you know, got rid of the communist uh, Whitlam. But... Actually, what it looked like was that Kerr was very careful to abide by the sort of propriety of, of dealing with the Crown. He tried to keep the Crown out of it. He tried to um, exercise... Um, it was interesting, um, one of the letters, Martin Charteris, um, who's... The, the Queen's private secretary. The Queen's private secretary, um, put, the, 
put the words vice regal in um, scare quotes in one of the letters I noticed. Um, <laughs> but, the, but the point was, which I thought was just an interesting stylistic touch, but I thought um, that was the point though, that was like you are you know, empowered to act on behalf of the Crown and this is actually your decision under the Constitution. And, I, and so my reading of it was just that um, the, the evidence points to Kerr wrestling with what his duty was under the Constitution and trying to act in good faith in an extremely difficult circumstance. That, that's that's yeah. what I took from it. So, so, I mean, that's overwhelmingly my view as well. I think the reading of it... So, so there's been a lot of claims made about, well, Kerr's personality and, and his relationship, but it's clear in the letters that have been released that everybody felt that they were in an awkward spot. Uh, everybody was quite unsure how to move forward. Kerr was doing as I read it, the right thing in approaching Buckingham Palace and seeking advice on his constitutional powers. And the and Buckingham Palace responded with a, um, a evidence or an argument that he had certain powers in reserve that could be used in circumstances, not in these circumstances necessarily, but in the, 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 the palace retains these powers or the crown and, and you as the representative of the Crown retain these certain powers. Never saying, go off, kick, kick out Whitlam, because we in the CIA have decided that this is the right thing to do, but just, just asserting that the Crown has powers in reserve. Now, th there's been a number of articles written, including by Jenny Hocking over the last day or so, uh, uh, sort of claiming that this assertion of powers is wild political interference in a domestic political matter which is just to my mind, an insane claim. If you ask the Crown, whether the Crown has the reserve powers that it has claimed for centuries, of course, it's going to say that it does. There's no world in which it says, no, 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 purely domestic political matter. You don't have the powers that we have asserted since you know constitutional monarchy existed and and indeed so, and, and indeed reserve powers of the crown within the context of the australian constitution yeah no that, absolutely right so this, this is not just a damn squib this is sort of a a um you, you would think that this was a a a full stop at the end of debate certainly about the um the 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 ro any royal interference in yep. the um but this, uh, this is where we come to. It won't be a full stop. Um, we know that, Chris, because um, uh, to put it in its wider cultural context, there's a wonderful line from, from Robert Hughes, the Australian art critic, who was trying to explain the dismissal and what it meant to like his generation of, of leftists, the boomer generation. And he, uh, he was trying to explain it to, a, to an overseas audience. So he said, uh, it occupies the um, uh, space in the mind of the Australian leftists, ru roughly equi equivalent to the Battle of Culloden for the Scots. <laughs> it was it's, it's this defeat which has thereafter defined them because this was the apogee of social democracy in Australia. This was the you know the crushing of conservatism um, by uh, the glorious leader Gough Whitlam, who was going to uh, usher in a new age of um, of uh, social. Uh, progress. Um, we'll come to a minute where uh, to an article where John Roscombe and Morgan Beggar, the IPA, talk about you know what what Whitlam had done in those amazing frenetic three years. But of course, it was nothing compared to what he was going to do if if his reign had not been so rudely interrupted by first the dismissal and then the election. So there's always been this feeling that it was of a piece with Pin Pinochet being ousted by the um, 
CIA in in Chile or uh, Mossadegh in 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 Iran or or whatever you know nefarious sort of um, anti-democratic measures that are conjured up by the left in this thing and and yeah, so so they'll never give it away. There's, there's too much invested in this. But you can never give it away. So I can understand, and maybe we'll talk about this in a moment. But I can understand being really angry with Malcolm Fraser. I get that because Malcolm Fraser played incredibly hard politics. I think the upshot of these letters shows that he played incredibly hard politics within the constitutional range or within um, reasonable constitutional limit. But it was really hard. Like it was, he played it tough. I can understand being furious about that. What this is about and what the letters are about is an attempt to look for a deeper interference, whether it's from the crown or from the United States, but there has to be more than just Whitlam got bested in the political realm. Yeah, they don't want to believe that. Exactly. They don't want to believe that this was um, a political matter. Yes, a hardball. Um, now, I have a, I have a slightly different um, view about how hard this was, um, just in the sense that what created the possibility of blocking supply was um, I think it was in Queensland that the breach of the convention that you would appoint a replacement senator from the party that mm. held the seat. Um, I think it was I think it was uh, Joe that a- appointed Albert Field, who had been a one-time ALP member, but was not then certainly yeah, um, an adherent to the ALP's uh, whip. Yeah, and 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 I look, I, I love conventions as much as the next man, but um, in a federal system, the state's house withdrawing its consent um, from the federal government seems like, or, or withdrawing its confidence effectively um, in, the, in the federal government doesn't seem like that big an outrage. It, it, what it seemed like was that this was a convention, um, like so many of our conventions, that is part of the unwritten constitution inherited from the United Kingdom that didn't perhaps grapple with entirely um, the federal structure that um, exists in Australia. And that's why, you know, the, the immediate consequence constitutionally of this was um, to, to formalise in the written constitution that this wouldn't happen again. Um, but I think, in a way, that was a loss for the system as it was created um, 75 years prior. Um, because surely the... Well, what we have now is a Senate that doesn't represent the states. You're That's quite, the point I'm endeavouring. You're quite right, actually. Like, there are so many things that, that flow from the dismissal. I said before the show, Andrew, that we could talk about this for an hour. So just that, that provision, which now rests in the state constitution, essentially took the power away from um, the states in, when it comes to replacing senators to the parties. So what we now have is a system where I think it's something like a third of the Senate was not elected yeah. at any time. And and we're seeing again with Matthias Cormann this, this um, progress now where virtually uh, no senator is removed in an election unless there's someone like Jackie Lambie or Darren Hinch because what the major parties do is organise these handovers during the, the, the term of, of the Senate. So we've, we've, I, I think you're absolutely right. That was a... Um, a retrograde step. Yeah, I think, and, and it's not like other systems don't exist, right? So, like in Canada's federal system, the upper house is actually appointed directly by the governments of the provinces. So, it's not like this had to be the way that you would reconcile Westminster government with the federal system. This is just what happened because people mm. got really upset at, at Whitlam being, as Chris said, 
bested on the political field. So also yeah. the other yeah, the other convention. Sorry, Chris. I just, I just what, still on conventions, and then <laughs> and then then I will give you the microphone back. Um, uh, the other convention, of course, was that uh, the Senate should not uh, block supply. It should not. It should always pass the money bills, um, because governments in the Westminster system are made and unmade uh, in the House of Representatives in the in the in the lower house. Uh, and um, this was the reasonable, the, the convention that had always been held. Um, and we could talk about uh, what happened with the House of Lords in 1911 and so on and so forth. Fraser actually recognised that convention. When he was elected uh, opposition leader, he, he, he recognised the convention and said he would, wouldn't, would only depart from it under reprehensible circumstances. So it was not like he ignored the convention or, or just drove a bus through it uh, recklessly. The, um, uh, the opportunity for him came when uh, the Herald um, obtained papers from Tereth Kemlani, uh, the uh, Pakistani middleman at the centre of the loans affair, who said he was continuing to be instructed by Rex Connor on behalf of the Whitlam government to secure overseas loans outside um, the Loans Council, outside the normal, uh, the proper borrowing processes of the Australian government. So this was extra constitutional action that Connor was engaged in, trying to source funds to nationalise Australian mines. There was a lot going on at the time. But this is pretty serious stuff. And that's when Fraser said, well, then I am released from the convention because the government is acting extra constitutionally and, um, and, and it is legitimate for me uh, for the opposition then to block supply in the Senate, which is what they then did, which triggered the crisis that ultimately led to the dismissal. I mean, you're, you're right. There's a lot of reimagining what the Whitlam government stood for historically. Um, uh, and it's very easy for the modern progressive left to view it as a, 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 a team before its time that were only interested in things like healthcare and welfare provision and that sort of thing. So a sort of soft left modern government. But they had certainly some aspects of the Whitlam government and from some ministries much stronger, much more, um, uh, in retrospect, reckless approaches to public policy relative to what we, what we imagine. But it does strike me, just as we're having this conversation, if you were in 1975 and you just observed what would happen, I think it would be easy to assume that the dismissal had would have huge long-term impacts over the Australian political system, over Australian politics, um, uh, over the way Australia sees itself, even over the Labor Party. But despite that drama, it's sort of hard to see much of a shadow of the dismissal in modern Australian governments. It doesn't, it, it's something that occurred, it's unlikely to occur within our lifetimes, partly because of the memory of the dismissal, but it doesn't have, it, it hasn't had the long-term either damage or influence that you might've expected. And I wonder why that is given the, given its, its obvious drama and its obvious significance, it hasn't given us a republic. For instance, I think that well, I mean, I think the answer is that we changed the constitution in the wake of it, to, so that this wouldn't happen again. I mean, I, I, think, no, I think, I think, sorry, I, I think it's more than that. So we did change the constitution, but we changed it in a way that has substantial downstream effects, but has, it, but I think is relatively minor, considering the drama of the event itself. Yeah, I, and I'm, well, I'm not convinced that we've had that big structural change that you would have expected. Yeah, it might have happened below the surface. I mean, it might be that this has been that this has discredited 
reserve powers um, in a way that we don't know until next time someone tries to call upon them. Um, certainly that was the, the message that came from um, uh, Bandana Man, um, Peter Fitzsimons, the Republic <laughs> movement, was that what this proves is that, um, that we're not an, you know, an independent country because reserve powers still reside in a foreign crown. And, and, and can, I, can I read a bit of Peter, uh, his <laughs> statement? Because it's amazing. Right. So this is something that Peter... He's Fitzgerald. just discovered that the Queen has a role in the Australian Constitution. <laughs> who knew? Peter, yeah, exactly. Peter Fitzsimmons, who is the chair of the Australian Republican movement and is most famous for wearing a bandana, um, he, he put out a statement saying, I am gobsmacked the letters by the letters. They bring to life once more the horror of what happened. Now, I think the horror that he's referring to is a realization that the crown exists that it has reserve powers that it doesn't use any more than once in a century i like this is i i think i think and so much of the commentary about these letters has been just a shock that the crown exists that we're not already a republic yeah oh, um, it's, a, it's surely it's an argument like if you if you're a republican surely this is an argument for this is precisely the reason i think we should be a republic yeah. not oh my god i didn't realize we were one <laughs> gobsmacked is probably the wrong word but i think <laughs> i think it might be based on a misunderstanding of tyranny I, I think that um in republics around the world various republics have presidents that have very similar power in fact there was an election earlier this year in peru that was precipitated by Congress failing to pass twice um, a law that had been promoted by the president and that this gave, this gave him, it was determined by the High Court, um, gave him the power to, to sack the entire Congress and call a new election for both houses, which he did. Um, and, of course, his supporters said, yeah, right on. <laughs> um, and his opponents said, you're a tyrant. This guy is going to be the new Maduro. Right, so that, that's what they said about his name is Viz, Martin Vizcarra, um, and the, you know, it's not like this debate is simply resolved by shifting that power to an elected um, head of state. Um, in fact, it could be worse because, um, for all of the debate about Kerr's motives, the debate about a president doing the same thing, his motives are actually very clear. Right? Why was this president of Peru's law blocked in Congress? Hmm. Well, because Congress was controlled by the right side of politics and he was from the left. It was an entirely a political thing. He wanted a law passed and he wanted a new election. So it doesn't clarify things to simply say, well, if we had a republic, this wouldn't happen. I couldn't agree more. And this is the scenario that I've been uh, playing out because one of the things that is confirmed in the Palace Papers, which, which was, uh, has been known um, subsequently, is that um, uh, Kerr was always afraid that if... Whitlam got wind of the, that he was to be dismissed, he would have immediately written to the Queen and asked for the Kerr's commission to be withdrawn. And Charteris confirmed that. He said, yes, Her Majesty would have had no choice because she must act on the advice of her Prime Minister. So Kerr was absolutely right to be afraid of that. And what Kerr was, um, was saying was that, as well as being bad for him, uh, would actually be bad constitutionally because you'd essentially be in a race between who could be dismissed first, um, uh, just as he was trying to dismiss Whitlam. Whitlam would be trying to dismiss him. And, in fact, Goff, in one of the papers from Kerr, had joked about this at a reception held for the Malaysian Prime Minister. 
And um, so Kurt was absolutely right. And, and so it's ridiculous that even diehards like uh, Mike Stichetti um, uh, this morning is, is repeating this canard that the, the, the most egregious thing that Kerr did was not warn Whitlam in advance. He could not warn Whitlam in advance. But to your point, I Andrew... Know, I don't know. I, it's hard, no, sorry, I sorry, sorry. No, no, please don't. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> because I just want to... Feel, again, this could arise in a presidential system because uh, one of the options that was put up to the Republic was an appointed president who could be removed by Parliament... If that, if so, uh, if that part or a House of Representatives say you could have exactly the same scenario yeah, running, it doesn't in, clarify in the political situation yeah. of it. But, but I, I'm slightly less sanguine about that because I read that less as oh we're in a tight constitutional bind than if I don't kick this guy out of my uh, his job I will get kicked out of my job. Um, and you can read that as a um, as a more clearly self interested story then then um then you know I'm, I'm really concerned about the awkward constitutional nature right? i think i think it does emphasize that regardless of what uh constitutional framework you have there's always going to be these uncomfortable tension moments in exactly. times of high crisis exactly and um you, and uh to give the devil uh his due um the thing about these palace papers that I do concede, and and we're so glad they're out. And then and the head of the National Archives has said he's so glad they're out. And um, who, who, who fought it for years? But he said <laughs> because because my legislation says that when papers are sealed under certain instructions, I have to follow those instructions. If the High Court thinks otherwise, so be it. But one of the things about all of these letters is Kerr clearly wrote an amazing amount of letters. He really was covering his backside. And, you know, I, so I, I don't... The, the, the critical phrase they keep using is green light. Palace gave green light. And the Australian Financial Review um, had that in one of its headlines uh, yesterday, even though the, the, the text of the articles that were written actually said the opposite. But by canvassing these options, he was softening up Charteris to what he was going to do. That was the opportunity where Charteris perhaps could have said, no, you can't do that. But then, then that would have that would have been interference. So it's an there's, absurdity. There's no there's no world in which the crown says that you don't have the reserve power. That the crown doesn't have those reserve powers. I, I guess my point is that Kerr wrote a lot more than he actually strictly needed to. He was ass covering. I mean, yes, this is the, he was this completely is, ass covering. Yeah, which which wouldn't you? <laughs> like, <laughs> he, he had one eye on posterity, one but, eye on yeah. on the palace. It's also worth remembering too how Kerr got the job. Right. Kerr was appointed by Whitlam because Kerr was a man of, of long-standing high reputation within Labor yeah, circles. Within the LP, yeah. Um, so it's not like, um, you know, Whitlam was sort of sabotaged by some, you know, rabid right-wing appointee. It's just, that's just not the case. Yeah. The last, the last point, of course, about the lasting legacy of the dismissal, uh, uh, Chris, I do think there, has, there have been lasting impacts um, in terms of um, reserve powers supply. I, I remember um, in 1991 when uh, the ALP government was collapsing in Victoria and Jeff Kennett had the opportunity to block supply in the upper house. And it was very much, no, I'm not going to do that because the lesson of Fraser is that the cloud over the legitimacy of his government actually stopped him doing the things in office that he needed to do. As John Roskam and Morgan Begg uh, point out in today's financial review, in terms of the the growth in government under Whitlam, which is which is quite astonishing. Um, 
uh, it went from around 20% of GDP to 24% of GDP and it's more or less stayed there ever since. It was a complete ratchet effect. Um, uh, Fraser never walked back uh, the big reforms of the of the Whitlam government and partly that was because uh, he saw this stain on his own legitimacy, which certainly the left was promoting and uh, and Kennett saw that possibility in 91 said, no, I'm going to wait for the election even as Victoria was collapsing uh, around us. And um, so the blocking of supply by an upper house in many ways is, is much less likely as a result of, of uh, the, the dismissal than... Uh, than it ever was beforehand. It could be that... I mean, this is the only Star Wars reference you'll ever hear me make, but um, it, you know, it was a case of, um, you know, if you strike me down, I'll be stronger than ever before. Right? <laughs> Same as Obi-Wan Kenobi, like... I mean, I'm not a Star Wars guy, so I'll probably butcher this, but, like, he's, uh, you know, having the climatic fight with um, Darth Vader, and he's, that's what he says. He says, if you strike me down, I'll be more powerful. And that's kind of what happened with Whitlam. I mean, we've been subjected now to... Uh, what is it? Forty-five years of of Whitlamism. Of yeah, because uh, you know, because in the end, Malcolm Fraser didn't want to wait for the the next normal election. So the big question, the big <laughs> question then, how's this for a segue, Chris? The big question is if Trump is struck down in November, twenty twenty, <laughs> at the U.S. election, will he be stronger or weaker? <laughs> will he be stronger? Is Trumpism a thing that will continue? Yes. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. So, well, well thank you. Yeah, great show. Um, <laughs> Andrew Bushnell says yes. Okay, cut. No, fade to well, black. <laughs> so why don't, why don't we give a little bit more context, uh, Andrew, before you... <laughs> um, so uh, at the moment, of course, Trump is probably not the presumptive victor of the November election. Um, and the and it's what it's really brought out is a, a renewed battle for the soul of the Republican Party. This week... The, a group of people calling themselves the Lincoln Project have gotten a huge amount of press for a series of ads that they've been doing online, it appears mostly, or in DC markets, um, but not, not you know national ads as far as I can tell. Um, they're basically trying to tell the story that um, uh, to Republican voters or traditionally Republican voters that Trump is the things that um, Trump is accused of being weak and lying and incompetent and all that sort of all that sort of stuff. But um, but the key thing is that they're trying to tell that story in a particularly Republican um, model. So, you know, if you believe in the party of Reagan, you will be opposed to Donald Trump. Um, now, this is just an internal political fight in the Republican Party, but it does raise the question, Andrew, which you've already precisely answered and succinctly answered. <laughs> so what happens? Um, uh, let's, let's not assume that Trump will lose, but um, if Trump does lose, if Trump does lose even badly, as the polls might suggest that he is at the moment, the public polls anyway, um, what does that mean for the Republican Party? Do we go back to um, the party of Reagan or do we, are, are we just totally Trumpified now? Or, or, or how do you see it? How do you see the future panning out? Yeah, I think there's two questions. Um, one is, will Trumpism survive? And then the second one is, can Trumpism ever win without Trump? So there's, there's two different questions. Mm. Um, I think the answer to the first one is clearer than the second. The answer to the first one is that whatever Trump, Trumpism will survive because um, for two things. One, it's a, it's a response to structural changes in the United States uh, culture and economy, um, and that's not going back. So for as long as the people who voted for Trump are alive, 
um, chances are their interests will continue to be reflected in something like Trumpism. Um, the other thing is that Trump hasn't done much of Trumpism, right? So <laughs> you can't say you can't say, for example, well, we built a wall and we still have the same number of illegal crossings of our border, right? Because the wall, despite what Trump says, is not built, right? So, the, and and it's under 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 appreciated. Um, fact about Trump and how he won was that so Trumpism always gets talked about as a kind of style but it is underappreciated that it was probably Trump's platform was probably the single most concrete platform of any major party candidate in living memory it was so concrete in fact that it included a promise to build a physical wall right it it was Literally um, concrete. Literally, like, it, it was so concrete that you can... So it was um, basically... You can test promises well, more than almost anybody yeah, else. Yeah, wall, trade war, um, re- reduced immigration. Red tape. Um, yeah, red tape, like drain the swamp, right, which has been a failure. So um, you can look at the things that he said. There were only about five of them, um, but he said them over and over again, and they were very concrete. Certainly by the time he was elected, people had a very clear idea of what he meant. Um, people, other people, maybe Trump didn't know, but um, other people had a very clear idea of what this entailed um, and it hasn't been done, right? So I would say that the second thing to say why Trumpism would survive is that the, the policy goals probably are still live policy goals. Now, can that win in the future um, based on, you know, demographic shifts, you know, the dying of older voters, the fact that Trump is um, less popular in the suburbs of wealthy cities than any other Republican candidate um, for a long time. You know, there's all these other factors about whether it can win as a platform, but I think as a platform, um, it'll be a continuing feature of American politics. Yes. So, so, so to, I, I think that's an interesting observation. To push back a tad against it, um, the nature of politics is that the party in power tends to push people away from their own political, or sorry, policy preferences. So what we've seen in recent years under Trump is actually a um, turn in favour of free trade in in polling and a turn in favour of immigration in polling as well. And I wonder whether the you can divorce a Trumpist policy agenda or the, the policy agenda Trump took to the election, we, we'll, we'll say that, whether you can divorce that from the person, given it's become so personalised to him. I suspect that people aren't more or less pro-free trade than they were before the Trump administration. I think that they're just reacting to him because it's personified by that policy agenda is personified by him. Yeah, I've been um, reading. It is personified, and that that is the essence of. Um, so Rick Wilson's one of the the co-founders of of the, of the project, uh, of the Lincoln Project, and uh, I've been started on his latest book, which is called Running Against the Devil: A Plot to Save America from Trump and Democrats from Themselves. And it's written as a letter to Democrats, and it's essentially saying, "Run this as a referendum on Trump," and it's it's sort of entertaining because he. Um, uh, he takes every uh, all of Trump's worst features and just concretizes them, and he and he actually talks about um, that if Trump wins, uh, essentially Trumpism becomes a dynastic project uh, with the um, the Trump children and uh, and Jared Kushner and and so on. So he, he actually underplays all of the things that Andrew's talked about as you know the social base, the actual policy base of it. But it is 
it is true that, um, as, he, as he said, as Andrew just said, it's in the suburbs where this will be fought out. And he's saying, uh, his hypothesis is that this is actually really easy for the Democrats. It's that for the Democrats to lose. All they've got to do is pick up uh, Republican voting women in the South, bring back the white working class men from the battleground states in the Midwest, and you've got the Electoral College. Um, that, that'll give you, the, you know, a chance in Florida, um, don't alienate the panhandle, uh, they can actually do this. The only thing that will stop the Democrats from winning is that they will do what they've been doing for the last 20 years, which is, you know, tacking to uh, their, the, the absolute woke left, the social media wing of the, um, of the Democrats, um, and, and let their agenda be identified as the Democrat agenda. And um, so that's why they picked Biden. Biden, unfortunately, is senile. Uh, <laughs> a 65-year-old Biden would, would have a fighting chance. God knows what's going to happen. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of interesting. Sorry to jump in there. I mean, we're going to talk about the post-election party, but it is interesting that sometimes, to Andrew's point, it's very unclear whether Trump knows why he won. And it's very often that you the strategic decisions he makes are based on an erroneous vision of of what what he um how he imagines the 2016 election because i think he I, I was thinking this very strongly last year during the impeachment i think that regardless of what we think about the the hunter biden burisma ukraine all that sort of stuff i think trump wanted to push that really really hard because that's how he thinks he beat hillary clinton by bringing out a political scandal about emails not about either the fact that Hillary Clinton was just a historically incredibly unpopular candidate, partly because she personified some of those policy areas that he was pushing back against, those five that that, that five principles or five policies that Andrew was talking about. Um, I think he doesn't understand how he actually made the gains that he did, which is why he's running this sort of base, not just base first strategy, but base only strategy. Um, I think I think it's the other way around. I think he understands instinctively um, why he won. There's also some uh, been some reporting over five, a period of like five years that Trump actually um, started polling on these issues to identify them much earlier than people had previously thought. So before he got in, he'd already been polling for a, like a year privately um, to identify the issues that he thought he could win on. I think it's actually more the strategists around him um, who who push you know other lines like attack lines? Also, I think attack lines come naturally to him. Um, so you know, calling Hillary Clinton corrupt or Joe Biden senile or something is not a stretch for Trump. <laughs> this isn't you know this isn't him going out of his comfort zone. But I thought it's really interesting, Scott. This this Rick Wilson character, um, Bill Crystal, some of these other guys who are completely discredited by their association with the failed um, George W. Bush presidency and. One thing I did see when I was um, looking around about this was um, there's this um, – you're talking about the, 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 the left of the Democrat Party and Rick Wilson's advice that um, it not be the case that the left of the Democrat Party becomes associated with the Democrat Party itself. Mm. Um, so I decided to have a look at uh, what the left of the Democrat Party thought about this um, on uh, – <laughs> there's this uh, podcast that they have called Chapo Trap House, which is like – what's called the dirtbag left. And it's these kind of yeah. socialist 
rabble rousers. They have this podcast. We, we have famous. mentioned Chapo Trap House on this podcast before. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's quite, I mean, it's quite successful. Um, and so anyway, I thought, well, I'll have a look at what they're saying about the Lincoln Project. And they see it as an attempt, um, not a jostling for position within the Republican Party, but a jostling for position within the Democrat Party. Um, they think that the Lincoln Project is so that when Joe Biden gets over the line um, and everyone knows that he's a puppet for strings to be pulled on, um, their view is that this kind of neoconservative, um, they were originally dissident Democrats and now they're dissident Republicans, are jostling for positions within that administration to box people like them out. Um, and they, they were saying, well, actually the trend here is that... Um, you know, people like this, they, they can finally get the Clintonite neoliberal Democrat party that they wanted, a complete unification across the spectrum of all quote-unquote neoliberals um, in one party, um, and then that will leave the Trumpist rump with the Republican Party and people like the Chapo crowd um, out of luck, basically, with nowhere to go. And, and that's, that, that's what they think this project is about. I thought that was an interesting perspective. It's a, it's a terrific uh, conspiracy theory. In fairness to Rick Wilson, um, he's, <laughs> he, he's, his takedown uh, of the Democrats and, and warning, warning against precisely these people uh, is based on some data. Imagine that. Um, it's called the Hidden Tribes of America Project. And um, this is something that broke down uh, Democrat... Uh, voters into sort of five groups on a, on a spectrum from progressive activists like that on, on one hand um, through to moderates and the politically disengaged on, on the other end. And what was striking about the sort of demographic analysis that they did um, was that these progressive activists make up just 8% of the American electorate 22% of the Democratic it's voter high, base and 39% of its social media cohort. Yeah. So this is exactly what we've been talking about on, on looking forward, um, about the, the domination of uh, social media and the setting of, of the tone of debate uh, by these um, woke activists. Uh, but, so, so this comes yeah. to, to come back to the Republican Party then. That you could Surely the Trump right has to be concerned that they're making precisely the same mistake on the other side, which is why I think the Trump running his base first politics is a, is potentially, and we'll find out, is potentially a really big mistake because there's a group of people that are a fraction of the population that are really, really, really in to knowing about Joe Scarborough and um, uh, and you know watches Fox and Friends really closely, follows Donald Trump on Twitter really closely, just really gets into this stuff, just huge in the same way that Chapo Trap House does on the left. Yeah, I think. Oh, I think that's a real. I think that is a real problem for Trump. Is that um, he has a base. Um, it's possible that he's talking to a narrower and narrower audience. His approval rating among registered Republicans remains stratospherically high 95 percent um, i always say is to, I, I always hear that number but i wonder how like are there more or less republicans know what i mean yeah well this and, 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 well this is the other thing is that just historically just as a matter of historical fact there are fewer republicans right every this is why um there's such a huge one of the reasons why there's a huge debate about polling in presidential races is the way that they weight the sample because actually there are simply more democrats than republicans in the country in terms of you know voter registration um i think it 
it can, it's often um, as high as a gap between 35% being Democrats and 25% being registered Republicans. So it can be quite a substantial um, gap. And that's why I, – well, I agree with you. I think it's incredibly risky. I think, it's in, I think the strategy of um, not seeming to care about alienating suburban voters seems to be quite a risky strategy in places like Texas where the polling is alarmingly close. Although it was – it was close for Ted Cruz, it was close last time for Trump and it turned out that um, Texas went the right way. But, um, you know, there's no guarantees on that. And I, I, I think um, that's part of why this, the statue thing and the, 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 the speech that Trump gave at Mount Rushmore, which was much more in line with the sort of traditional Republican positioning um, around, you know, the glory of the founding and things like that, I think that speech was aimed at those voters. It was like, come back to the Republican Party because you'll get to keep your private property, your guns and your statues. That, and was, the, that was who that was for. And, and what, what Wilson's advice to the Democrats is, is basically say, don't, don't even talk to me about that stuff. Don't, don't get into the culture wars. Just say, but this is Donald Trump. He's a horrible human being. <laughs> Just make the, the, the whole strategy and see if you can get those suburban voters over the line. So... Um, but uh, I, I will actually talk about this book. I think I'll make that my culture pick next week, perhaps, because I'll have, I'll have, uh, I'll have finished it by then. Um, but still in America, uh, the New York Times, Chris, the so-called journal of record, um, continues to uh, uh, melt down after they actually gave a platform to Senator Tom Cotton of the Republican Party a few weeks ago. What's, what's the latest on that? It does. So this is... The New York Times is. Uh, we were trying to figure out before the podcast. Oh, and I should say, I should say. And how does this relate to the article what you have just written in Quillette? And yeah, the so we'll, we'll, I'll pitch my article in a moment. But <laughs> <laughs> this is one of the pleasures of having a podcast. You can just indulge yourself. Um, uh, everybody tunes out, of course, but you know you have a moment to talk about your own work. Links in show um, notes. Links in show notes. Um, so uh, we were thinking about, you know, what, why do we care about the New York Times at all? We care about the New York Times because, you know, is it the most significant newspaper? I think, Andrew, you pointed out it's sort of the most, it's the biggest brand in news or the biggest brand in journalism or something like that. So what happens in the pages of the New York Times is indicative of the media in general, I think. I, 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 I can make the argument that what happens in the New York Times is a reveals some of the pressures within journalist newsrooms across across the world and, and in Australia, in Fairfax or Channel 9 newspapers um, in, the, uh, in the pages of The Australian. Anyway, so today, in fact, we learned that um, one of the, she describes herself as a centrist editor of the New York Times, Barry Weiss. Um, uh, she's friends with a lot of conservatives and um, classical liberals and libertarians, um, has resigned from the New York Times. Uh, because she found that um, it was a uh, unwelcoming place for centrists. And I'm going to read her um, open letter that she released um, uh, just from that. Twitter is not on the masthead of the New York Times, but Twitter has become its ultimate editor. As the ethics and mores of that platform have become those of the paper, the paper itself has become increasingly a kind of performance space Stories are chosen and told in a way to satisfy the narrowest of audiences rather than to allow a curious public to read about the world and draw their own conclusions. Now, I have an explanation for that, but I thought before I jump into my theoretical explanation for everything that's going wrong in the world, um, Andrew, I might toss to you 
how do you think about the um, what I think is an increasing polarization of the media, a decreasing capacity for media organisations to take a balanced or open-minded perspective? The um, so I think just after the bit you read out, the the bit that I thought was interesting, I think it was it might have been even the very next sentence. Um, Barry Weiss talks in a letter about. Um, the difference between uh, a process of collective discovery, was her, the phrase she used, versus um, using the newspaper to spread an orthodoxy, quote-unquote. Um, and I thought that, that really hit the... I thought that was a really interesting observation because it's something that I've, I've kind of been thinking about a, a little bit. And the, if you think about the, the, the newspaper as a... As it's, and, and you talk about this in your article, Chris, so you'd be able to explain it a lot better than me, but as a, as a kind of quasi-neutral platform that brings together readers who are attracted to the product of journalism and advertisers who want to reach those audiences, um, the, that kind of platform sort of t requires a, a belief that um, knowledge is only... Um, to use philosophical language, a posteriori, or um, based on um, based on. You're gonna have to spell that out. For based on based on evidence. Links in show notes, Chris. Links no, no, but no. But this is. I think this is. I think this gets to her. Is that what she's saying about it being a, a process of collective discovery? Is that we need to talk about things and we need to run experiments and we need to ex experience the world individually and collectively um, to produce knowledge. That's where knowledge comes from. And what she's saying is that the people who are now in charge of the New York Times and similar institutions do not have that belief about knowledge. They believe that they have a system of thought that is known and provable a priori, that is without evidence. Um, and basically it can be boiled down to, I think, the claim that justice equals equality. And that is a statement that for them requires no proof, right? It's actually a, a completely different view of justice. Yeah, uh, it just is, and 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 that's what I think is 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 interesting in all of this is that um, the question is to believe in the New York Times as a platform or to believe in any institution that aspires to that kind of neutrality. Do you need to have this belief about knowledge about why you would have that? So I mean that that claim about knowledge operates as a justification for why you would support such an institution, right? You know, you'd run a Tom Cotton piece to see the responses. Right? That, was the, that was the thing that they got in trouble. Senator Tom Cotton, right-wing senator from uh, the Republican Party, had this, this piece. And ordinarily, you'd run it to see the responses and you need to engage in the debate and that that would reveal something useful for people. Um, if you don't share that belief, you don't think that that, that call and response produces anything of any value, any knowledge, then well, why would you do it? And so I kind of had a different... I know you're, you have an economics take. I had a kind of um, epistemology yeah. take, but I think we're getting at <laughs> so no, no, similar, similar uh, points. And, yeah. and, and I have an organisational take, but I think, Chris, let's start yeah. with yours. So I'll, I'll explain that. So, so Andrew's, Andrew's foreshadowed this already. So traditionally newspapers are these platforms, right? So they're, they're a place by which we match the readers with the advertisers. And the thing about a platform, so, you know, readers want journalism, advertisers want readers, so advertisers pay for readers advertisers pay lots of money, the readers pay very little money or sometimes even free. Um, the thing about a platform though is you want as many people as you can to be on the platform. General, uh, advertisers want to advertise to as many people as possible. So that shaped content decisions. 
that meant that you wanted to have as many ideological views on the page, on the op-ed op page as possible, because you wanted to appeal to as wide an audience as possible. You wanted to have your journalism as, quote, objective or sort of you from nowhere as you could, because you didn't want to alienate one side or the other side of politics. Now that gave us, that's the dominant media model of the 20th century. And it gives us these concepts of objectivity in journalism. It gives us um, that sort of bland, non-byline journalism that we're all very used to. But for lots of reasons, the advertising disappeared. And the main reason was the internet, but that there's lots of different reasons. So suddenly newspapers have found themselves having to charge readers for the journalism rather than charge advertisers to produce the journalism and they've had to charge a lot more now if you're paying a lot more for your newspaper if you're paying a lot more for your journalism why do you want to be stuck with stuff that you'd not enjoy why do you want to be alienated by a tom cotton op-ed who you know someone who you loathe um who you think is writing incredibly offensive stuff that might be fine if if the newspaper is free but it's not fine if you're paying really large amounts of money for it. Yeah, Chris, so what I, I've, I've got the age here, which I bought this morning because of the uh, Palace Papers. Three dollars mm. forty for a bloody newspaper. I mean, yeah. Now, now, um, <laughs> even even the Age or the Herald Sun, they're, they're still trying to get as much of that mass market as they can. At the moment, the Herald Sun is being given away for free at my local IGA. Um, but but it's nonetheless the case that the price is going right up, um, and people are demanding a a more specialty product because they pay for that. And ideology is that specialization. People want to read more niche publications. Now, I think that's great because I like newspapers and journalism that comes from a place. I think it's more honest. I think it's more entertaining and it can often be more informative if you know what you are reading, if you know that it comes from a place. Um, but it does explain a lot about the change in media attitudes. And I think it explains quite a bit about the change in political disputes. I think it changed a bit, uh, quite a bit about political polarization because we're now marketing to more passionate people. Yeah, no, it, it does. I, I have a um, yet another perspective, what I hope is yet another perspective. So let's say these market forces that you're describing and your article talks about double-sided markets and um, stuff which I, I learned a little bit about. Thank you, Chris. Oh, that's good. Um, my uh, pleasure, Scott. Because because it, it was invented after I came out of university, and of course my <laughs> my knowledge of the world stopped somewhere in the nineteen eighties. Um, <laughs> so thank you for that. Um, but let's say there's um, out of, out of the changes in markets emerges this strategy. So you're essentially, saying this is a rational strategy responding to to market incentives, but that is creates sort of this platonic ideal of a business strategy. The other thing about Barry was what she was talking about was her colleagues started up positions, uh, petitions for her to be fired. Um, there's an in, uh, a platform called Slack, which is like social media for inside an organisation, which they use at the New York Times and many listeners uh, will be familiar with it. And she was being flamed on Slack all the time and, um, you know, with people saying on a staff communication channel why she should be fired and, and how what a terrible human being she is and all these kinds of things. And so one of the other things uh, I think this reveals about the cultural moment we're in is that um, the social justice warriors feel it is their right to determine the limits of all of these things, to play these things out in real time, determine 
um, not just that, um, uh, how you enforce that rule of justice equals equality, say, which I think you, that that sounds absolutely right. But you know they will sit in judgment and that. Not 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 even the chief diversity officer of the New York Times. I mean, God knows. Imagine what that person is like. But it becomes more like a, a, a mob rule, and and this is the way journalism has gone. So even if there is an ideal business strategy or a, a rational response, you've got this sort of anarcho-syndicalist collective, um, which is like that's happening at the ABC too. You know, the, the, the rules are essentially being set by staff, uh, the news staff, as, as to the limits of permissible debate. Yeah. I, well, there, I, there are no closer readers of a newspaper than the newspaper's own journalists, and there are no people who think it's more important than the journalist class themselves. I wonder, I wonder if given all of this, given that there's a kind of a market pressure on um, the platform model, uh, given, as, as, as you say, Scott, within a platform that aspires, anything that within an institution that aspires to be a platform, um, there's pressure from, um, let's let's face it, a fanatical minority, um, this is true. And then the point that I was endeavouring to make, which is that um, a commitment to, to the, the idea of a platform requires some commitment to, to discovery, to use Barry Weiss's um, apt word. Um, given all of these different pressures, I, I wonder if, um, because, of course, it's not just um, newspapers that have this model. In fact, our society has largely aspired to have its governing institutions um, as platforms in this sense. Um, and I wondered if there was a, an analogy to be drawn. Um, I, I wondered if given these different currents um, all sort of flowing in the one direction, whether um, other institutions that have similar features will have a similar fate? I mean, I think that's a, I think that's a it, big question. It, it, sort of, it sort of depends, to answer your question. So the thing about what happens to the newspapers is that the platform model collapsed because the advertising went to the internet. Um, uh, and I've been very critical of some of the claims made about precisely how that advertising shifted that the ACCC have made. But, but it, it, it absolutely happened. The rivers of gold just dried up virtually overnight. Now, these newspapers are no longer really platforms. They're just producing material for, for readers. They're like a factory, a journalism factory, where the um, person who consumes the journalism is the person who purchases the journalism. Um, so I think that there, there is that. But what I'm making is a particularly economic analysis of it. And why I like this story is because even though we absolutely have all these wild ideological contests and we've got the woke revolution and all that stuff going on we can sort of see in part why that's going on it's not just everybody's gone mad right it's that we've actually got reasons to understand how everyone went mad or what the underlying economic driver for that madness was and this sounds very marxist because this oh there's a material basis to your um uh, which which is most certainly how i don't normally view the world but i think there is a material basis to some of what is going on yeah, yeah. But, but i think no andrew i, I would take i would take your question and, and i mean u.s congress would be the example par excellence where there's a feeling amongst voters that in their market they're underserved in a sense because of the polarization of the congress that has been observed over the last 40 years um with fewer and fewer uh, bills jointly sponsored and, and so on and so forth um, because perhaps they're not the customers in, in an age when uh, the pre-selections 
uh, you know, through the primary process have, have devolved to the most activist wing of both parties. Perhaps that's a double-sided market that, you know, to take your, your analysis, Chris, into that domain and answer Andrew's question. Yeah, I, I think probably um, it could well be an analogy for, for other um, so-called platform arenas in which they're not performing their function because of this polarisation. Is that getting yeah, closer because, to... Because you're one of the... Yeah, because one of the... The promises of the internet age. Now, I'm not sure if this is this will be realised, but one of the promises was basically that you wouldn't need platforms in a way because the internet as the internet um, creates the possibility of um, bespoke bespoke services for every individual. Um, and so, in, to use the analogy, I think that you had in in your article, Chris, it was um, platforms versus factories. And a factory produces a specific um product but um and i would say in the internet's case that the idea is it's actually more of almost a commission um, and that's what you're talking about with the new york times delivering um on commission left-wing agitprop to the people who subscribe um but of course and there's nothing wrong with that well no you buy <laughs> sure buy agitprop um but uh, i do um but <laughs> um but I think, you know, I watch Tucker Carlson every day. But um, so I know what I'm doing. But the uh, but I think that the, the point is that, um, you know, that increasingly we can tailor our world to us. Um, that was the promise. Uh, I think there are physical limits to that, but we can tailor our world to us. And so this raises this, this question of, well, you know, is that, is that always and everywhere in every domain a, a good thing um, that we we can essentially create a closed feedback loop between ourselves and the external world such that the things that influence us and upon which we have influence are totally harmonised to the exclusion of other things? Um, you know, at the limit, that's kind of profoundly dehumanising. Um, but, you know, whether that's, whether that's where we're going, I think, is an open question. But I, I was sort of struck by... Um, the analogy you drew, Chris, because I thought um, that possibly we are um, all of us operating on a kind of commission model where we have access to these factories um, that can simply produce the things that we want um, and increasingly we're not exposed at all to the things that we don't want. I think so. So that's something that I'm super interested in. I'm less concerned. I, I, I'm, I'm not sure it's a real concern for me right now for this reason. So the ACCC, in fact, was very concerned for some reason in, in this, you know, just what we want, our competition regulator to care about, you know, public discourse and debate. But they were concerned that we would be creating these personal echo chambers, right? But the argument I've always had about that was that may be true for some people, but you would have to be incredibly myopic to only be in one echo chamber. And so you, we're incredibly interested in politics, right? So... We absolutely can exist if we chose to in a completely sealed up echo chamber. We would know what magazines to read. We would know what podcasts to listen to and what TV shows to watch. But we're also part of other communities, right? Yeah. So we you still might exist also in the be real really world. into chess. And so you follow yeah. chess Facebook groups. And those chess Facebook groups are going to expose you to lots of other ancillary views about politics. You might be a biker. You might be a guitarist. You might be, you could be anything. You And then you live in a real community, right? And, you know, I, I have to take my kids to school. I'm exposed to kids, families that are not necessarily precisely my ideological view. And now there are a 
group of people that are really in that echo chamber. But the evidence that I've seen statistically is that we're talking a incredibly small minority of the population that is so myopically focused on... It, it's, on, it on certainly politics. would be hard. It's a good point. I, I dropped in on a Facebook group the other day called uh, Dan Andrews Must Go. And I thought, <laughs> oh, this could be fun. And what I discovered, though, was the people contributing to this Facebook group on why Dan Andrews must go couldn't actually agree on why he must go. Mm. Um, some of them thought he, he wasn't uh, sufficiently pursuing an eradication strategy of the virus, whereas others thought that it was outrageous that he was pursuing <laughs> an eradication <laughs> for the yeah. virus. So I thought, gosh, you can't, you can't even coalesce around well, a simple the, proposition the, the, like the, that. The limitations of the overlapping consensus model. Yeah. Is, uh, but what, 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 what we've... We, so the technology has allowed us to get really into things, but it's also allowed us to join more communities at the same time. Now we as individuals have a choice about whether we're going to do that or not. Um, so we can, we can enter our own echo chambers, but we have the capacity to be part of many more communities that at any time in history. And I think that's super interesting and super cool. So Chris, speaking of the virtual world and the opportunity <laughs> to enter different communities, you have been watching a show called Upload about I have. someone living in one of those virtual communities after he's dead. So Upload is a comedy, um, uh, a, a slightly dark comedy um, on Amazon Prime at the moment where a um, envisaging a future world in which after you die, um, you are uploaded to a cloud that allows you to live in a virtual environment. Oh, sorry, it's not after you die, it's just just before you die <laughs> you have to upload yourself and then they kill you so you know when you're on your deathbed you upload and then they kill your 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 body but it allows you to live in a um, virtual environment where you can still communicate with your old friends um, uh, through a interface of some description so it allows people just to to quote live forever but in a um in a strange environment now it's a dystopian so it's a dystopian story. Um, uh, it, it is actually very funny and very um, warm-hearted, but it's a dystopian story about the possibilities of technology 10 years, say, into the future. Um, if you've seen Black Mirror, the Netflix show um, that was incredibly popular in the last couple of years, you'll be familiar with the genre of near-future dystopianism. Um, this is a lot better done than Black Mirror, and it's a lot less cringy um black mirror had these every episode was like and this is why social media likes are bad and this is why having your mobile phone with you all time is bad <laughs> this is a much smarter but, but san junipero was on a very similar theme that wasn't about upload and that was like widely held to be the their best nice episode their, their best episode yeah that was their best episode and the only positive episode as well from memory um, in Black Mirror, but Upload Upload has all the dystopian stuff. Andrew, you'll love it. It has all the dystopian stuff about technology, but it's actually just more fun to watch and less preachy and cringy. Yeah, that's the difference between what well, Black Mirror was written by a guy who used to be a columnist at The Guardian. And uh, um, this show, I, when you shared it, um, Chris, I, I had a look and it was, um, the guy who wrote this wrote the uh, Bart Selzy Soul episode of <laughs> Simpsons. Um, you know, so cl absolute classic. Um, so that, that kind of gets me in the door. I'll have a look. But um, I think, um, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting idea because I always think about heaven as heaven is a hard concept to understand, right? Because are you by yourself 
or are you with other people? Because if you're with other people, then it's going to be very hard to reconcile their kind of heaven with your kind of heaven in an absolute sense. Well, Sartre said that hell is yeah, other people. Yeah, hell, is, exactly. hell is other people. Exactly. But so, I mean, and so on the, the opposite, right, by extension, <laughs> heaven is being by yourself. Um, I'm not sure if that's true. I've never been able to wrap my head around head around how heaven actually works. It's, it's, it's possible that um, we have spent thousands of years as a culture um, taking the idea too literally. Um, that has occurred to me as well. But um, Well, you might be able to avoid it by uploading. <laughs> you will never have that question answered. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if live. I want to live forever in a computer. I mean, I'd, I could live forever like this, I guess, um, because the alternative is unthinkable. But you do have the option of exit. You just in. love podcasts. That's <laughs> <laughs> a lot of podcasts to listen to forever. You'll have a chance to catch up on all these podcasts. Um, uh, thank you for that. So that's on uh, Amazon Prime. Um, I have been reading this book in... In between lockdowns in Victoria, I went out to the Heidi Museum in Heidelberg, uh, which was at one time the home of John and Sunday Reed, um, who were a couple and uh, patrons of modernist art in Australia. So we're talking about the period essentially uh, from uh, the late 30s uh, through to the mid-60s. They were a big cultural force um, and they sponsored, uh, sometimes literally because they were both independently wealthy, uh, a lot of emerging artists, uh, most famously Sidney Nolan, uh, but also others like uh, Charles Blackman, um, uh, Joy Hester. Um, they did Angry Penguins with, with Max Harris, uh, which is a famous cultural episode in Australia. So it wasn't just a Melbourne thing. They had um, uh, links all over Australia. Um, uh, I, I fall into the category of someone who knows nothing about art. I just know what I like. Um, but I did learn a lot from this book. Um, it is, uh, they had access to the archives and an amazing period, I must say. What a strange couple they were. They really, um, uh, Sunday Reed uh, Nee Bailu came from the famous uh, Melbourne Bailu family, which uh, recently was the last Liberal Premier in Victoria, uh, was on another branch of, of that tree. And um, so they had this sort of noblesse oblige and they had the money to do it and they created this sort of bohemian paradise in, in Heidelberg as they were uh, collecting art and collecting artists. And it was truly bohemian. My God, it's amazing. They all slept with each other at various times. <laughs> it's just staggering. Um, uh, as as uh, Leslie Harding and Kendra Morgan uh, unpack who was sleeping with whom at different times and then the inevitable tensions that, that flowed from all of that um, because, uh, strangely, jealousy never really goes away and then uh, feelings of exploitation and everything else. Um, but it, it does introduce you to some of the, the art um, of, of Nolan, the Kelly series, how, he, how he's building it up. Uh, Albert Tucker, the, that was the exhibition that I, that I saw out at Heidi along with one by Joy Hester. Uh, that, then I bought this book on the way out and finished up reading it. Um, it, it. And then, of course, perhaps the ultimate irony is that having spent all these year, the years championing the modernist turn in art, um, they lived long enough to see uh, the abstract expressionists come on the scene. And they, you know, they started, tried to get with that too in their old age. 
Um, but essentially, you know, they're, it's they're... quite physically challenging to throw paint at a can. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, you know, they were never guys who were going to say, I mean, oh, you this... want to talk about CIA plots. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know. So they, they'd been abstract the... expressionism. <laughs> yeah, that's right. right. Um, but, but having, you know, that's the trouble with being, you know, revolutionaries and, and pushing back against that. Uh, I must say, um, it was a pleasure to read a book set, uh, in the city in which I live, and, and I could walk around um, within a couple of blocks of this studio just seeing places where they'd set up galleries where they had the original Museum of Modern Australian Art, um, uh, uh, the Balzac, the coffee uh, palace and, uh, and bar, bar restaurant set up by Merca Mora and her husband Georges, um, who also appear uh, as dramatis persona in this book, uh, it, it, uh, I really learned a lot, and um, so not something we, not the sort of political matter we normally talk about on um, uh, on looking forward, unless you just see it as another part of the culture wars, and you still think that Sidney Nolan was a fraud who couldn't draw a uh, human figure to save his life, uh, which is a view that has been expressed in the IPA at various <laughs> times. Uh, but anyway, I um, I sort I sort of recommend this this book, if nothing else, as a window into uh, a period in Australian bohemian and cultural life. But where were we? Bushnell, a movie. Oh yeah, well of course. Um, you know, I like to talk about things I've seen on Netflix. Um, this is a this was a, a big movie called First Man. Um, came out, I think, two years ago, um, or maybe towards the end of 2017. Um, it was a, sort of an Oscar contending movie at the time. It's now on Netflix, um, and I had I had missed it at the time. So, and basically, I love movies about the space program. Um, I think, and it's just space generally. So. Um, I was very keen to see oh, you, this. You, you did Ad Astra, I think. Yeah, I think I, I think I did. Yeah, yeah, I spoke about that on this show. I, I, just, I, just, I just like these things. Um, you know, I per, my, my view is that the space program, putting a man on the moon with the computing power of uh, less than an Apple IIe, I reckon is probably the greatest achievement in human history. So um, anyway, this is, a, this is a great... I like this movie. This movie was somewhat divisive because basically it's about Neil Armstrong. It's not about the space program. It's one of these movies that announces its key themes in the title, First Man. It's about the man who actually got strapped to a rocket and shot at the moon, right? Um, and it's about what it would take to be that guy. Um, and I thought... Um, and this is of a piece with... The, the guy who made this is um, Damien Chazelle, who made um, La La Land, and before that he made a, a great movie, um, the name of which escapes me, was about a drummer... Allow me. About Just keep kid, talking. About a kid um, uh, learning to become a, a, a great, great drummer. Um, and his movies are about this individual obsession with greatness. And so he tells this story about Neil Armstrong um, in this same vein. Um, and I just thought it was a great American film about um, what it takes to be a high-achieving individual. Um, it really focuses on the physical risk, the physical aspect of this, um, that... We twice see Neil Armstrong escape from uh, near-death situations based on his own wit and skill. Um, and, of course, it's underpinned by... Um, basically, the psychological heart of the film is that Neil Armstrong is, in some sense, dealing with the loss of his daughter, his young daughter, who died, uh, dies at the start of the film. Um, and throughout the film, we, we track the different losses in, in Neil Armstrong's life, the other astronauts who die, 
Um, and it really shows you the, the high human cost of this, uh, this incredible endeavor. Um, and it's, it's shot through with a kind of a n nostalgia. Um, mm. It made me feel like this was a great generation of men that in a sense we don't measure up to. Um, and it, 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 it's so shot through with nostalgia actually that when he casts his mind back towards the end of the film, Neil Armstrong, to when he was happy, and he's thinking about a moment playing in a you know idyllic field with his family and his young daughter, um, and this is here's the deep read. Um, he's wearing a red hat, so a red baseball cap. When was America great? It was great right then at that moment. Ooh, this man. That's um, and I thought I thought um, the film had a, a, a strangely. Um, Maybe just because it was so focused on this this one man and his heroic endeavor, um, it kind of had a, a traditional aspect to it, um, and I, uh, which which um, I found quite moving actually. Well, um, uh, so I, I Whiplash, it. by the way, Whiplash. Whiplash, that was it. That's yeah. also a great Whiplash. movie, by yeah. the way. Yeah. I, I enjoyed it, and I like you. I just like movies about space. Um, I prefer my depressed. Uh, man in sorry are you guys hearing my screaming children in the background that's all right it's part it's part of the whole <laughs> lockdown the, the experience ambience, it's part of the zeitgeist you, you can honest. you can now be on one of those uh, viral videos with the guy from the bbc yeah. and, and with the kids um, bursting through the door i enjoy i enjoy i enjoy my depressed man in space movies but i thought the depressed man in space genre really shut out the heroic elements of this this film, this is genuinely an exciting, as you as you point out, this is one of the most important moments in humankind, in the history of human ingenuity, and the and it and it just it, everything has to be reduced to. But he's also quite sad, and he's yeah, all, and, uh, and, and and you know, legitimately so. Some real tragedy. The in appeal, his life the appeal of it is: do do you want to hear about uh, Apollo Eleven, but as though it were Solaris? <laughs> Well, yes. yeah, that's, that's, that's how that's, it was pitched in the elevator. Right. That's, yeah. a, that's about right. But I like my depressed men in space movies to be proper sci-fi, not just like, here's the same exciting story that you're familiar with, but <laughs> it, quite sad this time. Yeah, no, 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 you've got me intrigued, Andrew. I will have another look. Uh, uh, Armstrong does bob up as a character on The Crown, of course, when he visits Buckingham Palace. Oh, okay. I just, haven't got that just, far into just the Just as uh, Prince Philip's going through this midlife crisis and he's trying to ask him about what it was like on the moon and discovers that they're three anor absolute anoraks because they were selected not because they were heroic semi-mythological figures but because they were really good at adding up and remaining calm in a crisis and didn't mind being in a confined space for yeah. a long period of time. Yeah, I thought the movie did a good job of showing that. Yeah, that, yeah. Like, that one of the things that Neil Armstrong has a gift for was surviving. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Don't die. Yeah, 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 yeah no, it was good. So, yeah, he says, what would you do if you were told that, you know, that there'd been a failure and you weren't going to get back to Earth and you only had like three minutes to live? What would you do? Um, what would you be thinking, thinking about? And they sort of looked at it and said, well, we'd keep making calculations <laughs> to see if we could get back. Yeah, just <laughs> keep trying until the end. Yeah. The... <laughs> that was, that was what, else, what else can you do? That was a uh, good answer. So there we started and finished with Buckingham Palace uh, on this episode of Looking Forward, which is a production of the IPA. It is a great time, if you're not already a member of the IPA, to get on board. Go to our website, ipa.org.au. We actually have two special member promotions going at the moment, one uh, revolving around the great Dave Rubin, 
who's recently been on the Yippa podcast, uh, and another revolving around our new podcast, uh, which is Five Favourite Books with Bella de Brera, um, which has been launched with Greg Sheridan, uh, exclusive, uh, launched exclusively for IPA members. So get around that. I think it's uh, $55, which is a discount on the usual membership. Um, so become one of the 6,000-plus IPA members now if you're not already, and if you already are, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Looking Forward. A big thank you also to my co-host from RMIT University, Dr Chris Berg. Thank you, Scott. Uh, my uh, sometime uh, special guest, uh, research fellow, Andrew Bushnell. Cheers, Scott. Uh, I've been Scott Hargraves, editor of the IPA Review. I'd also like to th- say thanks to uh, Mitch and Steve in the control room and uh, Mia, who will be producing all of these show notes that we've just been talking about. And we'll be back with more Looking Forward next week. 